because he's ascending God, we can, he has more invested in our salvation than we do. We're 100% responsible for the problem. We're the ones that broke relationship, and yet he's taken the initiative to reconcile us to himself. So we're the ones that messed up. He's taken the step, the first step back to us. It's an indication that he's more invested than we are. We said because we're sent people, there's a couple of things we can say about ourselves. One is we always need to be available. That's that Isaiah, here I am, send me. So I have to hold everything loosely. My job, my career even, where I live, where my kids are in school, everything that I have, I have to hold loosely because God may very well call me somewhere else tomorrow or next week or next month. And the flip of that, those things kind of, these things are a bit in tension, is recognizing that I want to be available to be sent and I want to recognize that I've already been sent. Wherever I am, I assume I'm there because God has placed me there. It's this recognition of his sovereignty and his providence that I'm not where I am accidentally. And so I need to put down roots. So I hold things loosely and I put down roots at the same time. We'll dig a little bit more into that today. Today we want to look at the idea of going. If God is ascending God, he sends, we go in response to, to that. That's our, our obedience to being sent is to go. So sending is his initiative, going is our response. You see this particularly in Matthew and Mark and their um, versions of Jesus' last words, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, go into all the world, preach the good news to all of creation. There's this idea that says you've got to get moving. And so the first question for us is, well, where do we go? Y'all have all heard that cliche, if you don't know where you're going, you're bound to get there. And so if we're going to go somewhere, we need to know where. Somebody invited me on Friday to one of those NASCAR experiences. Y'all know what that is? We actually got rained out. We didn't get to do it, but we went through all of the preliminary. Are any of y'all NASCAR fans? I'm going to offend you. So just, I'm not doing it. There's only three, so it's okay. I think there's more NASCAR fans, but you think it's redneck, and so you won't raise your hand in church. There was only three in the first service as well. There's no way out of 300 people, there's only six NASCAR fans. We're not that uppity as a church, I don't think. So, so you go to this thing at the Atlanta Motor Speedway, and it's all about going fast, and they put you in a little race suit, and say so you're going to get in this car, and you're going to go 150 miles an hour around the track, and um, the guy who took me, he gave me eight minutes, so I had eight minutes in the car. So I, I'm initially thinking, oh, it'll be fun, it'll be kind of exciting, but then we do this safety thing, and our instructor's a guy named Bob, and he's a wee little man, and he has a Napoleon complex. He wants everybody to know he's in charge, even though he's not very physically imposing. And so he spends 50 minutes basically trying to scare everybody in the room. If you can't, who knows how to drive a stick? If you don't know how to drive a stick, if you stall twice, you're out. If, if you uh, get below the apron, it's where the bank and the flat part come together. If you hit the apron, you're going to spin into the wall. If you drift too high, you're going to bang into the wall. If you try to pass somebody, we're kill, they, they can kill your car for, remotely. We're killing your car, you're out. If, we do any, if you don't respond quickly enough on the little inner ear radio, we're killing your car, you're out. If we don't like the way your shoes are tied, we're killing your car. You're out. I mean, it's just, so by the end of it, I'm going, maybe it'll rain and we won't have to do this. I'm nervous by the end. I'm going, I don't know if I get my car out of first gear because you put all the pressure on me. I'm trying to remember all of the RPMs where I'm supposed to shift at 24 RPMs. You do this and all, I'm trying to remember all this stuff. And he says, you can't get within five feet of the bottom of the track or within 15 feet of the top. I've never been to a race. I don't know how wide the track is. So I'm like, how much wiggle room do I have? between five feet this way and 15 feet this way without running into the wall, if those are my options. So 
we do all of this. And as, you know, he says, it's a right. I'm kind of looking around the room, and again, no, no offense, but I'm thinking the men, they don't care. But they want a good story to tell at the bar tonight. They don't, you can kill their car. They're going to go as fast as they can, and they don't care if it's reckless. Two car links behind somebody. You watch what these guys do. So I'm, I'm a little nervous about the whole thing. And then at the end, I'm thinking all of it. This is a whole lot of work to end up right back where I started. I'm going to do all of this work, and I'm going to get out of the car the same place I began. I don't even go anywhere. All I'm doing is making circles. That's NASCAR to me. I don't understand at all. We need to know where we're going. So how do we know Acts 1.8? Jesus says, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Those are concentric circles, but it's not priority. It's not first Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, then the ends of the earth. They're just, it's these different areas. Jerusalem's where they were. It's not where they were from. They're actually from Galilee. It's where they were at the time. So that's kind of wherever you are, that's where you start. That's where you go first. Judea, if, if Jerusalem's a city, Judea's the county. It's the surrounding area. Samaria, that's crossing geographic boundaries. Jews and Samaritans did not like each other at all. Jews looked down on Samaritans. They saw them as these kind of mixed breed, um, kind of half Jews. They not, no respect there at all for them. Saw them as unclean, didn't want anything to do with them. That's a significant cultural wall Jesus was saying to cross. And the ends of the earth is what you think it is. It's going everywhere. So I look at that and say Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. So in one sense, we can say, oh, okay, that's... That's where we go, but then if you look at the others, it doesn't tell us anything. He says, go everywhere. Like, what is not in one of those four categories? Not everything fits into one of those four categories. Everything is either Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, or the ends of the earth. There's no place, there's no people that you can't fit under one of those categories. So, honestly, Acts 1-8 is not a lot of help. If we're being sent, it doesn't tell us where we're supposed to go. So, that's what I want to dig into a little bit today. What does it look like to go? Where do we go? And then what do we do when we get there? I want to do that by looking at the two bookends of that. Ends of the earth in Jerusalem. The ends of the earth, that's what you think about most likely when you think about missions. If you were raised in a church that had Missions Sunday or Missions Week or Missions Conferences, when you hear Great Commission, when you hear Missions, when you hear Go, most likely what you think about is this map of the world here. And that area in red is called the 1040 window. That's between 10 degrees north latitude and 40 degrees north latitude. That's the most unreached area in the world. There's 7.1 billion people in the world. 4 billion of them live in that stretch. Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism are all centered in that region. Um, Of those 4 billion people, up to 3 billion of them are not reached. What it means to not be reached, it means people can't respond to the gospel in a way that makes sense to them. It may be that the Bible hasn't been translated into their language. It may mean that there's, for all of them, there's less than 2% of their population is Christian. There may not be access to a church. It means that they can't respond to Jesus. It may not mean they've never heard his name, but the gospel's never been presented to them. They would call it in their heart language, in the language that they would understand best and have a culturally appropriate way of responding. So of those 4 billion, 3 billion of them are unreached. 80% of the poorest people in the world live in that window, live on less than 250 bucks a year. They say and that if you're thinking ends of the earth, that's probably a good place to look. Over the last 20 years, the missions agencies and the kind of the church in general has begin to, begun to target that area, but we're way behind the curve. Statistics, they're hard to nail down, but I saw several different places. A nickel out of every $100 that we spend on missions goes into that area. And you don't have to be a businessman to say that's a poor 
investment. If there's three billion people there who need to hear the gospel, and we're giving them a nickel out of every hundred dollars, three hundred and ten million dollars, which sounds like a lot of money and is a lot of money. It's how much money we spent on Halloween costumes last year for our pets. That's how much money we put into that window last year. Don't feel bad if you got your pet a Halloween costume. You can feel bad about that for other reasons, not because that money <laughs> didn't go to missions. So there's this, there's probably 10 or 12,000 missionaries devoted to that area. That's one missionary for every 250,000 people in the region. None of this is to make you feel heavy. It's just when we think ends of the earth, this is a good place to start. Just a, We're a small church, but just within from this small body, you actually, we have missionaries in China, in Cambodia, and in Turkey, which are all in that 1040 window. If you put money in the bucket when it comes around, then you're investing in that window. We support all of those people every month. So you're, you're already engaged in the work there. Some of you know those missionaries. You're already engaged in that work. There's just more to be done. I'm not going to try to convince you to go, because if you go, you probably need to bring a casket with you, because you may not come back. It's honest. The reason that area, one of the reasons that area is so um, dark is because the governments that control that area don't want anything to do with Christianity. They don't, you can't check on your little customs form or immigration form when you're coming in on the plane. You can't put religious reasons for why you're coming in. You can't get a religious worker's visa. They're called restricted access or closed countries. They don't want people coming in as missionaries. The Christians that live there, those are some of the countries where the highest rates of persecution of the church are in that 1040 window. So within those countries, there's the, the believers that are there don't have very much freedom and are actually at pretty, some of them are in danger for their lives for being Christians. And there's not this sense which, where they can expand uh, the church, where they can spread the gospel without fear. So we have a couple of things going on. The United Nations has this scale of suffering. One to five, we're a one. If you live in the United States or France, we're a one because it's pretty easy to live here. The majority of the countries that are four and five, which is, means a high degree of suffering, they're in that window. There are all these reasons at play for why it, they're unreached. It's, it's, a di it's difficult work. It's pioneering work. A lot of these places, the Bible's never been translated into the languages of the people who there are thousands of people, if they wanted to buy a Bible, they couldn't unless they learned another language because there's not one that they can understand. Again, there's, there's no access to missionaries coming in from the outside. The Christians who are there are a very, very small minority. We're talking about less than, less than 5%, in some cases less than 1% of the population. And even as that 1%, they're squished and pushed and persecuted in a lot of ways. Again, difficult area to get at, but that's it's kind of the last mission frontier in a lot of ways. And there may be some of you who God would call there. He absolutely, again, I'm not going to try to talk you into that at all. That's a word from God kind of thing if you're going to move into this 1040 window. But when you think ends of the earth, that's what that looks like. People say, and I guess they're right, that the United States is actually the third largest mission field in the world. It's the third largest country, so it makes sense it would be the third largest mission field. I don't think that's surprising. We have the third highest population, so it makes sense we'd have the third highest number of people who aren't believers. I saw this map. This is a completely different map to kind of give you a picture. So what's in blue are the tweets about beer, 
And what's in red are tweets about church. Y'all know what a tweet is? Twitter. So you can look at that and you can see the places in our country where they're spending a lot more time talking about beer than they are talking about church. We look okay kind of where we are. It looks like there's the godless north and the godless west. Except that area in Southern California probably where Saddleback is or something. So the rest of the areas you can see. That doesn't mean anything, by the way. That was just some guy being silly. They say there's 195 million people in our country who don't know the gospel. We talked last week about lost sheep who've just kind of wandered away, people who were raised in church and wandered away. Actually, if you look at kind of an age breakdown, 23, age 23, they have the fewest number of Christians at age 23. It's people who, many of them were raised in youth group, and they get to college and they're like, I'm out. It's not interesting. This doesn't, it's my parents' faith. It doesn't impact me. So you've got the wanderers, you've got the lost coins who legitimately have never heard the gospel. It's hard living in the Bible Belt saying, are there actually people who've never heard the name of Jesus? There actually are. And some of them live here in Cobb County who've never heard the name of Jesus. And you have lost sons who are rebelliously running away from him. 195 million people in the United States who would be considered unreached, who, who need at least the opportunity to move into a relationship with Jesus. So you've got this ends of the earth thing and then... I think for me, what's more important is Jerusalem. Jerusalem's wherever you are. So for our friends who are in Turkey, Turkey is Jerusalem to them. It's not the ends of the earth. It's where they live. For our friends in Cambodia, Cambodia is Jerusalem to them. All ministry is local. I think this idea of Jerusalem, it's saying you've got to start where you are. It's not where you're from. It's where you are. In Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth, it's just to give us perspective. It's to remind us, hey, look up every now and again. It's easy for us to get focused on where we live, wherever that is, and the needs there and living our life there. And sometimes we forget that there's a broader world. And so I think Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth is to remind us, hey, look up. Look at your surroundings, Judea. Look at people in your area who are different from you, Samaria. And remember there's a big world out there, ends of the earth. But for us, wherever we are, it's Jerusalem. And you can draw a little box, one of our values here, what we call them our anchors, is for you to find your Marietta. Where's the place that God has called you as a church? We feel like he's planted us right here on the square. So this is our Jerusalem, and you have one too. Again, and if you say, I don't know where it is, I would say, tell me what your day looks like, and I'll, I'll draw the map for you. Wherever you currently are, that's your Jerusalem. Your neighborhood, your place of business, where your kids go to school, the, your social activities, that you can draw a box around all of that and say, that's where God has planted you. That's the area where you start. That's where he has sent you, and that's where you go first. You're always available to go somewhere else, and then that somewhere else becomes your Jerusalem. But for right now, the assumption is wherever you are, whether you like it or not, whether it feels holy or not or whatever, it's this recognition God's put me here, and it's my Jerusalem, and so I need to begin to do what? And that's where Jeremiah 29 comes in. This is a letter written to exiles just to remind you The Israelites had spent hundreds of years rebelling against God, rejecting him, resisting the prophets. They take one step forward and 300 steps back. And so at some point, 586, he says, we're done. I'm going to send you guys to time out. He allows the Babylonians to come in, overrun their country. And then what they would do during this time, if you wanted to wipe out a nation, you wouldn't kill everybody, you would exile them, which meant we're going to take you out of your land and we're going to absorb you into ours. And over time, you're going to lose your identity. You're going to lose everything that makes you unique 
as a people because you're going to just mix with us. So if, if we all decide we don't like northerners and we go to East Cobb and we bring them all over here to Marietta and in time, and then they, they live among us, they all start to say y'all and drink sweet tea and say yes ma'am and all of those things. And eventually that whole culture has been diluted by us. And so we kind of went out and that culture dies. That's what happened. In the history of the world, there's one, one nation has ever returned from exile, and it's Israel. No one else ever did. It was a death sentence. And so the, the Israelites, they're sent into exile, and they figure we're done. We're out. We're not God's people anymore. This thing is over. And God sends a letter through Jeremiah to say, hey, here's the deal. Here's what I want you guys doing. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carry. There's that idea God sent them into exile. Even though they're being punished, judged, disciplined, God's the one behind all of that. I carried you into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And here's what he tells them to do. There's four concepts. Build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce. That's the first one. Second, marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Here's the third one. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. And here's the fourth one. Pray to the Lord for it, because if, it's pos- because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So wherever your Jerusalem is, however you would draw the box where God has planted you, where God's put you, there's four words in here for you. Live, grow, bless, pray. Those are the four things that we do. So when we go, what are we supposed to do? Once we figure out where we're supposed to go to, what exactly are we supposed to do in that place? You're supposed to live, you're supposed to grow, you're, both, you're supposed to bless, and you're supposed to pray. We'll look at each of those in a little bit of detail. Live, that's what we talked about last week. This idea of putting down roots. The theological term is incarnational ministry. Jesus is God in the flesh. If God were to, during worship, some of y'all probably felt God's presence, but you didn't see him with your eyes. He doesn't have a body. He's spirit. He's, he's invisible. And so what he said is, I want y'all to know me, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to put skin on. And he did that in the person of Jesus, God in the flesh. That's John 1, 1 through 14. The word with a capital W became flesh and dwelt among you. Hebrews 1, 3 said he's, Jesus is the exact representation of God. Colossians 2, 9 says the fullness of deity dwelled in him in bodily form. Jesus says, if you've seen me, then you've seen the Father. And so that, that's what it means to incarnate something, is to put skin on it, to put flesh on something. And that's what we're supposed to be. We're not an exact representation of God. We're varying degrees of approximation. But there's something there for us. If you're a Christian, then the Holy Spirit is living within you, and you incarnate his activity. I can't see what's going on in your heart, and you can't see what's going on in mine. All you can see is what I do, and all you can hear is what I say. And so, ideally, what you're seeing me do and hearing me say is an incarnation, an embodiment of that Holy Spirit's activity within me. So if I wrong Caroline in some way, and her choices are to pay me back or forgive me, if she chooses to forgive me, that's an incarnation of the Holy Spirit's activity in her life. He is in here stirring her to extend mercy and grace to me instead of seeking to pay me back and take revenge upon me. And when she does that, then I can see that and I can hear that. That's something, that's an incarnation of the Holy Spirit's activity 
in her life. Some of you, everything in your life is falling apart, but you have this deep sense of peace. So your coworkers or your family or your friends, they can't see what's going on in here. All they know is you're incredibly calm. You're put together. You don't, you're not falling apart and flipping out. And, 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 and that's, a, that's an incarnation of the Holy Spirit ministering peace into your heart. So my question for you, we can all think of things that we don't do. You can all, we can all think of areas where we're not incarnating the Lord's um, activity very well. But where are you doing a good job? Just think of one. Where's one area in your life right now where you'd say, yeah, if somebody was listening to what I said, or if somebody was watching what I'm doing, they could, I could say, yeah, th- this is the activity of God. That's what you're seeing. That's what you're witnessing here. Every one of you can say yes to that. You're not resisting the Holy Spirit in every area of your life. So grab onto that one and recognize that's, that's part of what going means. It means living. It means incarnating the work of God just in your daily life. A lot of times you don't even have to say anything explicitly about the Lord. It's just, the, it's just living with transparency where what's going on in here is manifesting itself in your physically. So other people can see that. So we live, the second thing we do is grow. Not necessarily biologically, but spiritually. The family should grow. It's a parable of the mustard seed. Starts small, gets big. The gospel is good news, not bad news. God says and he doesn't desire anyone to perish. He wants to bring as many people as possible into relationship with him. So there should be more Christians next year than this year. And there should be more the year after that than there were then. There's this idea that the kingdom should constantly be expanding, that there should be more and more people coming into the family of God. And so this is where many of us get nervous. Incarnational ministry is not, honestly, it's not that difficult. It's just living with integrity, really, where the things God's doing in you, you're allowing those things to come out of you. When it comes time to grow, that's where we get nervous because sometimes we actually have to say something. And so then it's, well, what am I going to say? We'll look at this more next week, but Jesus says in Luke and in Acts, he says, you're witnesses. That's what we do. I've never been in court, but I've watched a lot of Matlock and Law and Order. And from what I can tell, witnesses don't, it's not their job to convince. It's not their job to convict. It's not their job to convert. It's their job to testify. All witnesses do is say, here's what I know. Here's what I saw. Here's what I heard. Here's what I experienced. That they're just giving, and what's the oath? Just tell the truth. That's all they want to know. Just tell the truth of what you experienced. It's the lawyer's job to do all that other stuff. And Jesus doesn't say, be my defense attorneys. What he says is, be my witnesses. All you have to do, or all I have to do, my only responsibility as a witness is just to tell the truth of what God has done in me. I don't have to know, the, I don't know, have, know, have, have to know how creation and evolution fit together and whether seven days were literal 24-hour days. or what. I don't have to know any of that. If somebody asks that question, what I can say is I can't, I don't know the answer to that. This is what I know. I was a wreck. And I turned my life over to Jesus and he started putting it back together. That's what I can testify to. And every one of you has something you can testify to. God has saved you from something. And you can name that. That's your testimony. And you can be a witness to that. And it's, it's incontrovertible. People can't undermine or contradict. It's your story. It's you saying, this is... This is what I've experienced. It's not that it can be difficult to talk about these things because we feel like, well, I'm being offensive or I'm being pushy. But if you, we can remember, it's, Jesus says in John, the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin and guilt and righteousness. That's his job. 
The Holy Spirit's the one who opens eyes so that they can see. None, none of that stuff is our responsibility. It's not my job to convince or convict or convert. It's my job simply to testify to what I know to be true. And every one of you has something that you know to be true. If you're in a relationship with Jesus, something brought you into that and your life has changed in some way. That's what you're a witness to. You can't be a witness to something you haven't experienced, so don't worry about that. Don't worry about all the things you don't know. Just focus on the thing that you do. And then you begin to look around in your Jerusalem and say, is there someone who needs to hear this? You don't have to go banging on their door. You don't, you don't have to do any of that. It's just this recognition, hey, I know what I can testify to. And for some of us, where we get stuck is we, don't even, we just never think like that. We never even actually take time to think through what has God saved me from? What has he saved me for? What can I testify to? What is the work that he's done in my heart? And that's a good starting place. It's just beginning to work through some of that. So we build or we live then we grow, um, then we bless. It says, the, Jeremiah says, seek the welfare of the city. This is a Hebrew word, it's shalom. It's often translated peace in the Old Testament. It means a whole lot more than the absence of conflict. It's the presence of harmony, of wholeness. It's being in right relationship with God and other people. It's a, it's a deep, kind of rich word. And what Jesus said is that's, or what God says through Jeremiah is that's what you need to be going for. And remember, they're in a pagan city. They're, they've been brought into Babylon, which is a pagan empire, and the Babylonians' desire is to make them not Israelites anymore. It's to so dilute who they are that they cease to exist as a people. And in the middle midst of that hostile situation, what God says is, hey, do what's best for that city. If it prospers, you will too. And you may feel that whatever your Jerusalem is, it's a wicked place. It may very well be, and what God would say to you is seek the welfare, seek the shalom, seek the well-being. Of this place, there's a in Mark and in Luke, Mark five and Luke eight. There's this story of it's the Gerasene demoniac. So Jesus gets off of a boat, he walks into a graveyard, and there's this demonized guy there. So he's naked, he cuts himself with rocks, screams at the top top of his lungs, lives in a graveyard. Not exactly an ideal picture of hell. And what he says to Jesus is, "You gotta help me. Do something. I'm a mess. Nobody can help me." And you remember the story what Jesus, there's a herd of pigs, and Jesus says, all right, these demons, y'all go into this herd of pigs, and the herd of pigs all go jump off a cliff and drown in a lake. And then the, the summary that, of what happens to this guy says he was clothed. Jesus addressed his physical need. He was in his right mind. Jesus addressed his mental need. He was sitting at Jesus' feet. That's a posture of discipleship. He addressed his spiritual need. Jesus says to him, go home. He addresses this social need that we have for relationship. You don't have to live in the graveyard anymore. Side note, I think the main reason that you have this whole thing with the pigs, why in the world did Jesus send the demons into these pigs? I think it was, that's a visible thing. Everybody can see pigs go jump in a lake, and that's not what pigs normally do. They wouldn't know if Jesus had just healed the guy. They may say, oh, he's faking it, or, you know, sometimes he goes into remission, who knows what they would have said, but they all saw these pigs jump in a lake. And so it's easy then to say, you know what, maybe he's been healed. He's been delivered so he can come home, and then he gives him a job. Go and share, go and tell. Jesus addresses all of his life. That's shalom. He doesn't just look 
at one part. If you read, I think it's Mark's version of the story. It says the people had tried to bind him hand and foot. They tried to chain him up. And Luke says they tried to guard him, but they couldn't. He broke the chains. He broke the shackles. He broke the bonds. And I guess he, the guards got scared and ran away. The people are trying to address one element of his problem. They're trying to just keep him either from hurting himself or hurting other people. Jesus doesn't do that. He addresses the situation holistically, and he starts at the root. The root of the problem is you're being oppressed by these demons, so let's deal with that, and then we can begin to put all of these other pieces in place. And again, look, it's a holistic healing. It's not just, he doesn't just address one area of his life. So if you see somebody hungry, relief is, I'm going to give you $5 to go to Wendy's, and that's good. There are times, particularly in disaster, when relief or crisis, relief is what's necessary. Everyone who lives in the Philippines, they need relief right now. They need people who can move debris and can get in clean water and take care of all of those things. That's relief. Development is better than relief. It says, I'm not just going to give you $5 to go to Wendy's. I'm going to find out why you can't come up with $5 on your own. Oh, you don't have a job because you don't have a GED. We're going to meet on Tuesdays from 3 to 5, and I'm going to help you get one. It's the whole give a man a fish, teach a man to fish thing. It's better. Development says, I'm not going to keep giving... I don't want you to be in a position where you're constantly depending upon me to meet your needs. I want to get you to a place where you can be responsible for yourself. So let's get you a GED so now you can get a job. But transformation is even better than development. Development maybe just looks at one slice. It's deeper than relief, but it just looks at one slice. Let me get you, let's get your GED so you can get a job. Transformation looks at someone as a whole. Got a substance abuse problem. All right, we need to take care of that too. You've got a dysfunctional family. Let's take care of that. You're not in a relationship with God. Let's fix that. Transforma- so, re- transformation better than development. Development better than relief. Relief better than nothing. What we want to do in our Jerusalems or in our Mariettas is this work of transformation. It's this work of shalom. It's seeking the welfare of the city. It's saying, in my little box, I don't want to just see symptoms. God, I want to know why things are broken. And not in a narrow sense. Show me how all this stuff fits together. It's much harder work. It's much easier to give a guy $5 to go get a hamburger. It's much more difficult to meet with him and help him get his GED. And much more difficult still to say, I'm going to walk with you until we can kind of put all these pieces back together in your life. But that's what we're called to do. That's part of what it means to go. It doesn't just mean to be a witness to the things you know to be true. It means I'm going to help you walk into these things as well. So let's figure out what's going on in your Jerusalem. What are the problems? Can you name them? What are the problems in your office? What are the problems in your kids' school? What are the problems in your neighborhood? You may, not, you may be around people who all have master's degree. Their issue is not that they don't have a GED. It's that they keep, they're sleeping around and they can't maintain a marriage. So let's figure that out. And let's look at that. What are some things that, that we can do on a deeper level to address the root cause there? So that's what we're called into. And it's actually, it's, it can be daunting because it's significant work. But it's incredibly rewarding. That's when you begin to see things transform and things shift. So we want to live, we want to grow, we want to bless, and we want to pray. Prayer, we've said before, it's not telling God things he doesn't know. It's inviting him to get involved in everything we're talking about ultimately is work he's got to do. I can't change anybody and neither can you. 
I can manipulate people for a short amount of time, but not a deep level of change. If we, if we want to see eternal fruit, then we need an eternal God to get involved. And so prayer is involving him. And there's all kinds of things about prayer, but to me it's not rocket science. You ask for what you want. So you, you know this Jerusalem where God's planted you. So what do you want to see happen there? Give him room to speak at God. This is what I want. Is it what you want? And then obviously I'm going to submit to you if, if I want to go right and you want to go left and you're going to win. But this is what I want to see. And you kind of have that dialogue with him. And the big key to me is just to be persistent. Luke 11 and Luke 18, that's Jesus highlights persistence as a key to prayer. There's a heresy that floats around in parts of the Christian church that says if you pray for something twice, it's a lack of faith. If you really believed, you'd only have to pray for it once. That's just stupid. That's not what Jesus says. He says, ask and keep on asking. Knock and keep on knocking. Seek and keep on seeking. There's continual action in all of those things. Again, Luke 11 and Luke 18, the point of those word pictures is be persistent. Keep asking for things. So you ask until either God does something or he tells you to be quiet. Those are your two options. Until he says yes or no. Just be persistent in prayer. Some of the things that you're going to recognize and want to tackle are significant. They're deeply rooted in the fabric of whatever your Jerusalem is. And it's probably going to take more than a couple of minutes of prayer to see those things pulled out. Remember, we have an enemy who's actively opposing the work of God. There's a kingdom of darkness that's actively battling the kingdom of light. We know we win. That's not a scary thing, but it's a reality. It, it, and so we've got to be willing to persevere, to, persi- to persist in prayer. I don't care if you cry when you pray. I don't care if you yell. I don't care if you're quiet. Like, to me, all that's just style. What matters, to I think, biblically is, are you going to stay with it? Are you going to keep on asking until God either says yes or says no? He's not reluctant, but for whatever reason, he set things up to say, hey, be persistent in this. So you want to live. Put down roots. Be incarnational. Recognize, hey, this is, I, wanna, I want to be intentional about allowing the things that God is doing in me to come out so other people can see those things. We want to grow. I want to know the things that I can testify to. Again, not my job to convert anybody, but I want to be a witness if called upon. I want to be able to say, hey, this is who Jesus is to me. This is how my life is different because I'm in a relationship with him. I want to bless. I want to see my community look more like God wants it to look. I don't want to have a blind eye to people individually or corporately who are struggling. And I want to pray, God, what's going on here? How do you want to see things change and I want to continue to ask him to do that until either he does or he says stop asking and that's the same invitation slash challenge for all of you we've said this a couple of weeks this is this isn't a heavy thing it's take your kid to work day any of you've ever brought your kid to work they don't help you be more productive they're just with you and that's what God is doing with us he's saying hey listen this is what I'm doing and I would love for y'all to do it with me, and I'm going to give you legitimate responsibility, but you don't need to feel pressure about this. I can work through you and around you and over you and under you and in front of you and behind you, but just come on and get involved. I have real stuff for you to do in your Jerusalem, wherever that happens to be. I'm going to, it's, it's, it's real work. It's not just go color for a little while while he does the real stuff. It's significant responsibility, but it's not weighty. 
because he's, remember that in Matthew, he's with us through all of these things. So again, it's an invitation to partnership with him, and all you have to do is say, okay, I'm, I'm in. Draw your box. This is where I'm sent, so this is where I'm going to go. And then begin to put down roots there. Begin to seek to expand the family of God there. Seek the welfare of everything in that box and ask God to get involved. Let's pray. God, I do thank you that you invite us in to what you're doing. It's exciting. Sometimes, honestly, it is a bit intimidating. It can feel like, for some of us, it feels like one more thing. When am I going to do all of this? Or we feel inadequate. I'm not up to the task. We're just apathetic. I don't really care. Lord, I pray you would stir our hearts for our Jerusalems. God, if there are men and women in this room who you would call overseas, I pray that you would do that even now and they'd be receptive to what you're saying to them. If there's some here, you would even call into the 1040 window that you would begin to speak that into their hearts and kind of stir that passion in them to go. For the vast majority of us who will never live overseas, I pray, God, that we would recognize our Jerusalem. We would recognize the place where you've already sent us, where you've already said, go there. And you would show us what it looks like to live and to grow and to bless and to pray. And God, I pray that we would see transformation. That would not just be a slogan, community transformation. God, I pray it would be a reality for us. That we would see these, we would see men and women and boys and girls who are just like this garrison demoniac, who are oppressed, who are physically destitute, got no family, no home, no purpose broken relationships with you and everybody else. God, we would see large numbers of them being set free and transformed. God, I pray for the structures in our Jerusalem that chew people up and spit them out, that you would show us what do we need to be doing about those things as well so that they're more reflective of the values of your kingdom. God, as we start doing this, so intimidating, it's easier just to watch Sports Center. God, I pray that you Stir our hearts. Show us what you want us to do today. What's the next step of obedience for us? In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to close with ministry. We'll have ministry teams up in the corner. We'll pray with you about anything that you've got going on. If anything I shared, stir in your heart. We'd absolutely love to pray with you about that as well. So you guys can stand, and Bo will dismiss us after the song.
loved us from the start Waiting here for you With our hands Lifted high And prayed And it's you We adore Singing Hallelujah You are everything you've promised Your faithfulness is true we're desperate for your presence, but all we need is you. We're waiting here for you with our hands lifted high in praise, and it's you. Oh 